재미와 지식의 오디오 라이프 팝빵. We're back. We are talking about lawmakers and the privileges they enjoy in South Korea and the outrage that a lot of people have over this especially with the unproductive 19th general Assem- national assembly and the idea that uh, the public's trust is quite low at a historic low um with these lawmakers so should they voluntarily give up some of those uh, privileges we are going to be connecting and maybe get some comparative politics with an expert in sweden There, um, you might be surprised with these uh, big entourages that you see these Korean assemblymen have, that lawmakers don't even have personal aides, and they have the same uh, very heavy workloads that Korean politicians do. So we'll find out uh, what some of the uh, benefits offered there and see if there may be some benchmarking we can do. Give us your thoughts. Text us at pound 1013 for 51 or send us a Kakao Talk message by adding TBS EFM as a plus friend. Joining us here in the studio once again, Professor Hwang Jong-uk. Professor Hwang, okay, there is another kind of idea that we got the 19th General Assembly and National, I keep saying General Assembly, National Assembly, the most unproductive National Assembly in terms of legislation passed. And as you said, uh, rightly, these are not positions that you can get rich from, I guess, depending on your definition of rich, but it's a set salary. But a lot of people still feel, I would love to make that amount of, of money for yep. kind of working half the year, just sitting down in a cushy chair. There is that, uh, and other countries have had that, that kind of um, pay-for-play um, principle, right, where if you are not actively um, being productive in the National Assembly, you do not, you do not receive any um, uh, compensation for that. That aside, what is your thought on the issue of pay, but also what in your view, and you talked about the two Uh, privileges uh, afforded by the Constitution. What are privileges that you feel may be egregious and may be rolled back? I think the one privilege that has been abused a little bit and I referred to a little bit was that no arrest privilege. That probably can can go. I th- I don't think it really serves anymore given the fact that you know, the chances of military dictatorship coming back in Korea is virtually you know, unthinkable, basically. And in terms of you know, uh, incentivizing this National Assemblyman to actually perform, rather than th- you know, g- g- giving them monetary sticks, I think it has to be coming from general political pressure, both from the media and the civil society in general. I think on one hand process-wise, I think we'll need more transparency and two, we'll need more monitoring both from the media and civil society to, you know, basically make this National Assembly accountable. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point because a lot of people feel, oh yeah, okay, so that um, 100-some-odd million won salary that you guys are getting, 200 million won, whatever, if you're not in session, if you're not actively passing bills, you're not going to get paid. That's going to be a really strong deterrent or, I suppose, uh, disincentive to, to not be unproductive. But as you say, with the things not being transparent, a lot of these lawmakers might say, okay, fine, you, you're cutting my pay by 30% in the last year. I'm still getting those kickbacks from exactly. these other shady dealings. So that's not going to be too much of a skin off my nose. In, in, in that case, in the worst case scenario, they might actually focus their energy on, on whatever shady buildings. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it makes sense to actually you know, keep, uh, keep the privileges, but, you know, keep, uh, also apply more political pressure for them to perform. We also now have some insights into how lawmakers in other countries behave and are being treated, particularly in Sweden. Let's invite from the University of Gothenburg political science professor Jan-Pierre. Hello. Hi, how are you? 
I'm doing Thanks great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us, Professor Pierre. Uh, the Swedish parliamentary system, and I suppose this is going to be a bit of a civics lesson, uh, just just very broadly, um, just tell us briefly about it, the number of parliamentary members and how, I guess this is that uh, age-old U.S. politics, or how a bill becomes a law. Yeah, uh, happy to do that. I mean, while uh, I can barely hear you, so okay. if someone could just turn up you a bit, that would be great. Okay. Um, the Swedish system of government and, and parliament is... A fairly straightforward parliamentary system. Um, uh, there are 349 members uh, of parliament representing, I believe, 28 different constituencies. Uh, there are currently eight different political parties represented in parliament. Uh, there is a 4% threshold uh, from elections for parties to make it into parliament. So uh, that means that you will not find a party group in parliament which has less than, say, 14 or 15 members uh, uh, of parliament. Uh, it is a system of very strict uh, proportional uh, representation that, that aims to reflect the division of voters among the parties uh, in society as closely as possible uh, in, uh, in, in parliament. Um, it is a parliamentary system. That means that the government has to secure either a majority of support in parliament or, as is more often the case, uh, it has to make sure that it is not facing a majority against it. Uh, so what we've had, in effect, uh, well, basically since the end of World War II, we've only had so-called... Uh, 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 majority parliamentarism in Sweden for just for a couple of years when the government, a single party government, controlled uh, the majority in uh, uh, in the parliament. So the normal situation, I would say, is one where there is a minority government that mm. has to reach out to other parties to secure passage of its bills. Uh, that also means that sometimes we have, as is now the case, for instance, uh, we have... Uh, a coalition government, which is also a uh, minority government, and that creates a rather intriguing parliamentary situation because it means that, first of all, that government has to agree w among its partners about uh, uh, various policy matters, and then secondly, uh, that agreement has should not be more rigid than that you can make concessions in parliament in order to secure uh, a majority support for those bills. So the standard passage of uh, making policy or uh, getting legislation through the system here is that government will draft a bill, it then submits it to parliament, um, and it is referred to a committee along with motions that are submitted by the individual members uh, of uh, uh, parliament. Mm. Uh, parliament then decides and it is then passed on uh, to the public ad administration uh, for implementation. Yeah, already we can see uh, certainly some notable differences between the Korean system, uh, which brings us to our next question. Another difference, uh, I believe, here is that here in Korea, a lot of people aspire to be uh, parliamentary members. Uh, there's a prestige attached to it. The so-called elites in society all want to be. I've heard that uh, uh, there are certain reports that say uh, Swedish people actually avoid 
or tend to avoid becoming parliamentary members because of the high intensity of work. What are the major responsibilities of members of parliament there? And could you tell us uh, maybe even about the rewards and privileges that you're given? Well, uh, yeah, there's, there's a fair workload associated with being a member of, of parliament here. Um, uh, the parliament is in session uh, probably for longer periods of time than most other parliaments. Uh, today is, in fact, the last day just before the summer break here, um, and then they will convene again in sort of late August, so, so there's a fairly substantial summer break. Uh, when they're in session, uh, they're pretty much in session uh, throughout the rest of, of the year. Uh, there is a, they are, There are no uh, meetings on Mondays. Uh, on Mondays, uh, parliamentarians are expected to go back to their uh, constituencies, talk to business people, talk to NGOs, talk to citizens, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the workload is pretty intense. Uh, it's not just a matter of showing up for the roll call and push a button, but you have to be, you're, you are invariably selected to at least one of the parliamentary uh, subcommittees. Um, you also often some serve on royal commissions that sort of are involved early in the policy process. Mm. Uh, you will serve on numerous boards in society in in your capacity as a uh, parliamentarian. So the workload is pretty intense. Meanwhile, the compensation is is fairly modest. Mm. And the the paradox here is that there is there tends to be a fairly intense debate whenever uh, the compensation for parliament parliamentarians uh, is on the agenda uh, and there is easily an uproar saying that why are we increasing their salary by say six seven percent when the average wage increase in society may be only two or three percent mm. so it, so it's a delicate issue and that means that wages are kept at a fairly low level uh, the main the main problem because i i heard you talking earlier about sort of incentives and disincentives and that always sort of makes me nervous when you bring those concepts into sort of uh, political analysis because mm. there are other factors at work here I, I believe one is that uh if you if you set up a level of compensation for parliamentarians that will attract people then maybe you're attracting the wrong kinds of of, of people Maybe you would prefer people who have a passion for public office. Uh, I think it is probably true in most countries around the world that if your overall aim in life is to sort of make the rich quick kind of career, uh, right. you probably should not go into politics at all in the first place. So okay. the problem then is, as, as I see it, is finding a sweet spot that that offers a decent compensation which will be attractive to sort of reasonably bright, you know, mm -hmm. the best and the brightest, but it shouldn't be too high because that would stir a lot of controversy. Uh, furthermore, uh, national parliaments often are uh, in competition to attract the best and the brightest people uh, from government at other levels. Uh, one big problem we've had here is that many successful politicians have had an interesting choice between either remaining in uh, uh, in Parliament and being one of, say, 50 or 60 or 70 or so people representing this one particular party, or 
alternatively, uh, you could seek to become mayor of your hometown. Mm-hmm. That would mean that you would be basically you you would be working in the city where you live. You would probably be better compensated, and you would have a lot of executive control and a lot of executive opportunity to basically do what you want to do as a as a sort of successful politician. So. Setting the level of compensation for politicians is a, is actually far more complicated than you think. Yeah, and I suppose it really depends on the unique circumstances of a particular country, right? Uh, if we look at the Singa- yeah. Singapore case, where they also are a very transparent and non-corrupt society, they do want to attract the best and the brightest, as you point out, and their compensation levels are, are off the charts. Huh, okay. Uh, I- I, I guess it's hard to find a middle ground, and it's hard to, I suppose, try to gauge a level that is, as you say, the sweet spot in terms of what is enough to attract um, talented people, but also, uh, I, I suppose, uh, an acceptable level for, for for the rest of society. Yes, I think the big problem is that if you set the compensation at a, at too low a level, you will find yourself selecting people from pretty much the bottom of the barrel and you don't want that and so again you know it's it's a matter of finding that sweet spot and and where that sweet spot is comparatively speaking i think depends uh, on national culture yeah i think you're absolutely right how then would you say the swedish parliament it's it's often kind of branded as a, a utopia for various reasons, right? Whether it's the the welfare state and, and the transparency and the happiness of the society. But in terms of what you're being able to observe, is everything perfect in, in Swedish politics or are there things that you feel can be appro- improved? Oh, uh, it is it is not perfect, but I would really like you to continue to think that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but it isn't. Uh, uh, it, it it's not it's uh i think that one of the problems we've had uh we have this long tradition of being a very consensual system where uh we as somehow that it would be sort of hardwired into our dna to seek compromise whenever possible and to be uh accommodating and so on and so forth and i think that that is a tradition which is rapidly waning uh, also, uh, I just did a handbook of Swedish politics, uh, uh, for, uh, which was out last year, and I was going over some of the welfare, uh, welfare indicators, and it is clear to see that just over the past couple of decades, uh, Sweden has fallen from being a fairly sort of outstanding country in terms of all core welfare indicators to being pretty much on the OECD average. Hmm. Uh, this has a variety of different explanations, which I will not bore you with. But uh, if we were a utopia today, I think we're a, a great place to visit, a great place to live in, uh, but certainly not a utopia. Now, I wouldn't say that. As we kind of, I, I suppose, wrap this up, in terms of Swedish politics and, and the performance of the politicians and perhaps the apathy or the enthusiasm of the electorate, I understand Sweden also has very, very good participation rates. 80% voter turnout on average, uh, uh, which is one of the highest in the OECD. In Korea, it's one of the lowest. It barely gets to 50%. Do you think that a lot of that has to do with the particular parliamentary system and, and the way politicians generally behave as well as the uh, privileges afforded them? 
I think it has to do with, I think it's, it's a really good question. My theory would be that this is, this has for probably almost the past century been a society which has a significant a political encroachment in society. You know, we have, we have a big public sector, we have a high tax level, but people seem to be reasonably okay with that because they they can actually see every day the benefits that come from uh, the, the various public services. Uh, but that also means that that people will will turn to government to address all significant problems in society, and that is a that politics as a process has a has plays a sort of leading role in society here unlike for instance the u.s where no one would sort of immediately turn to government for problems they would find other solutions mm-hmm. they would turn to a local church or they will set up some informal network or they will go to the market or whatever but they would not expect government to solve all, all their problems we tend to expect government to solve all basic problems and that means that i think that people it's part of the political culture that the flip side to that is, of course, that everyone will turn to government for everything. And so there's a constant overload of, of demands. But it means that people tend to be overall very interested in politics here. And that explains the high outcome. Wow. It's very interesting uh, talk indeed. Professor Pierre, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. That was Professor Jan-Pierre from the University of Gothenburg. Uh, Professor Huang, uh, you heard what the professor had to say. I mean, everyone wants to be Sweden. Well, maybe <laughs> not everybody, but we know we can't. But that being said, as you look at the description of their political system as well as how the politicians are being compensated and afforded privileges, is there anything we can take from that? Well, I mean, if Korea was start from a blank slate and, you know, you have to design the system from scratch, I think Sweden might be a quite reasonable model to go after. But, you know, we are not, you know, we are not a high welfare society. Our public sector is about, you know, in terms of proportional to the economy, about half the size of Sweden. And, you know, the level of corruption, it's, you know, it's a fair level, you know, all kinds of indices indicate that. So given where Korea is starting, I don't, I think we can make, you know, gradual changes towards making things a little more transparent and a little more efficient, like, uh, you know, maybe the Swedish model, but I think we we do have to take some baby steps first. Baby steps. Uh, Let me just end on a listener comment and maybe get your final thoughts on that comment uh, from Kakao, one of our listeners saying, Korean politicians consider themselves above the people. The National Assembly is an inner circle that isolates itself from the real world, hence why their policies are so short-sighted and corruption is frequent. Unless this culture is abolished, uh, parliament will never be productive. In terms of the sentiment being voiced there, I think a lot of people share that sentiment. I know that you're not, you don't go as far as saying there's an inherent corruption in Korean society, but are there ways we can improve on that? Do you believe that the culture does have to change? Well, I mean, I agree with the sentiment, but, you know, culture has to change. It's really easy to say, but, you know, where do you begin? I think we do need to change the structure a little bit. I think that both the media and the civil society has to apply more political pressure on the uh, National Assembly to perform better. We need to demand more transparency as as a process matter. And, you know, there are all all, all little things that we can, you know, move along with. Baby steps, not a revolution, essentially. Yeah, unless we want to start from scratch and just build the Korean version of it. Korean Bernie Sanders, maybe, <laughs> will come up. All right. Professor Hong, as always, thank you so much for the great discussion. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much.